Just under half of the riders who started the 1998 Tour de France completed the race. Almost 100 riders were popped for performance-enhancing drugs. The following year, in 1999, the event was dubbed the Tour of Renewal. As we will soon find out, the Tour of Renewal was just as dirty as ever, and it marked the beginning of Lance Armstrong's seven-year cult of lies, bullying, and ruthless control over the Tour. Welcome to the Luke Alfred Show. I have 30 years of experience on the front lines of sports journalism, covering some of the biggest games in cricket, rugby, the FIFA World Cup, and even the Olympic Games. Come and join me as we learn about some of the greatest sports stories you've never heard. I'm Luke Alfred, and welcome to the show. In 1988, having just turned professional, a promising young Italian cyclist fractured his leg. The cyclist's name was Rodolfo Massi. He was 23 at the time and on the cusp, or so he believed, of a long and hopefully successful professional cycling career. Massi's fracture was so complicated that when he eventually returned to the saddle, he discovered that his recently broken leg was slightly longer than the other one. It led to slight imbalances in his pedaling rhythm, and that bothered him. He complained that he was never again quite the cyclist he once was, and so, of course, he was never the cyclist he had once hoped to become. From a young age, he became stranded in a very subtle cycling limbo, good enough to compete, but never really good enough to get appreciably better. Pedal as he might, he just went round and round. It was a netherworld he never rode out of. Rodolfo Massi's resume is revealing. It is full of details about his 10th place on the Tour of Tuscany, his 7th overall on the Tour of Trentino. There's a 3rd here, and the occasional 1st there, but nothing that lights up the page. In 1990, in one of his fitful appearances in the Tour de France, he finished 156th overall. You might have thought that Massey would earn a nickname for his deformity, or, to phrase it more charitably, the fact that with one leg slightly longer than the other, he was a little unusual. After all, he complained about his long leg quite a bit. He might have been called the Hobbler of the Apennines, for example, or simply Hopalong or Shorty or Daddy Long Legs. There might have been something witty in, well, a slightly close-to-the-bone way, something to indicate that although he was never going to be the best of the best, he was still admired and respected in the European cycling community. Except, Massey was legging it in a different direction. His nickname became The Pharmacist. Rather than developing his resume and finishing on the podium in races, Massey developed a lucrative second job as a drug merchant. If you were a rider in Italy or Spain or Belgium and found that you needed something vaguely illicit or even prohibited, you knocked on Massey's hotel room door preferably late at night. You smuggled him a message. The pharmacist was only too pleased to pass something across the counter, so to speak. Massey didn't seem to be too bothered to hide the fact that he moonlighted as a merchant because French police found a large amount of corticosteroids in Massey's Chambéry hotel room while he was riding for the casino team in the 1998 Tour de France. Corticosteroids are anti-inflammatories, a synthetic version of hormones, 
and at the time they were found in the pharmacist's hotel room, they were on a list of prohibited substances. The French police were looking through Marcy's luggage in late July. It was near the end of that year's tour, a tour in which the pharmacist had done unusually well, because three weeks before, on the other side of France, customs police had stopped a car on a back road. The road was close to the France-Belgium border, and the car was driven by Willy Wood, who was a caretaker, monsieur, and trainer for the Festina cycling team, then the number one team in the world. Rather than containing, say, camping equipment or groceries or even recreational bicycles, Wood's car contained anabolic steroids in capsule form, vials of the drug called EPO, syringes and other prohibited substances. EPO, by the way, stimulates the production of red blood cells, which carry oxygen to the muscles. All the available literature suggests that EPO became ubiquitous in the Tour de France around 1995. The New Zealand cyclist Stephen Swart had signed an affidavit saying that while he and Lance Armstrong were on the Motorola team in 1995, for example, Armstrong suggested on a training ride that the team better get with the EPO program. The consumption of the drug on tour even gave rise to a phrase. Injecting EPO beneath the skin was referred to as, quote, loading the cannon. The tour has always been associated with stimulants and amphetamines, anything to give the cyclist an edge. In the 1966 tour, riders nearly rebelled because they were so aghast at having to piss into a test tube or a bottle so their urine sample could be analysed. By 1995, everyone began to cotton on to the performance-enhancing effects of EPO. Cyclists have a terrible fear of being left behind on the mountains as well as every other aspect of their professional life. This was no different. If he's doing it, I better do it too, became the unacknowledged mantra. It was surprising to the customs police that when questioned, Wood claimed that all of the junk was for personal use. Privately, the police must have rolled their eyes because if Wood was to be believed, they were dealing with, well, the Lance Armstrong of dopers. But let's not be deterred with making cheesy comparisons. After Wood was pulled over, the police quickly realised that they needed to search Festina's headquarters in Maisieux, close to Lyon. In the Festina headquarters, they found a dossier. The dossier told an interesting yarn. It was a story about which Festina riders were to be administered with what cocktail of prohibited drugs. It wasn't only EPO. And when. A couple of days after Wood's arrest, the 1998 Tour de France was scheduled to start. As luck would have it, it was to start in Dublin, so the Festina riders weren't immediately available for questioning by the French police because they were in Ireland. When they were back on French soil, they were apprehended and taken in for questioning. Festina's sporting director, Bruno Rousseau, meanwhile fervently denied any knowledge of the drugs in Wood's car crossing the border. He said that he didn't know anything about the dossier found in Festina's offices either. It must have been a difficult couple of weeks for Roussel, however, because in the middle of the month, Festina's sporting director changed his tune. In a court in Lille, 
close to where Wood's car was searched at the border crossing, he admitted to full knowledge of Festina's doping program. A day later, Festina were expelled from the 1998 Tour de France, which is a little like Manchester City being expelled from the Champions League for fair play violations. Nine of their riders were bussed for the use of EPO and other banned substances. The events, and the events which followed, became known as the Festina Affair, which wasn't the best long-running advert in the world for Festina's sale of upmarket watches and jewellery. Wood seems to have mentioned Rodolfo Masi's name only as an afterthought while being interrogated by French police. Remember, Masi was the guy with one leg slightly longer than the other. Masi, after all, wasn't a Festina rider. He rode for a team called Casino, the team sponsored by the French mass market retailer and supermarket chain. At the time he was brought in for questioning, Masi was in the midst of his best tour ever. No real surprises there. He even won a stage in the Pyrenees. He was seventh overall when he was apprehended, only 12 minutes behind the then leader and eventual winner of the 1998 tour, Marco Pantani. Being seventh didn't earn him any special privileges. He was transferred from close to the Swiss border where he was arrested to the public prosecutor's office in Lille. His pre-trial detention period was extended. Casino, his team meanwhile, put pressure on the team to continue racing in the tour, an instruction to which they didn't take kindly. The pharmacist, after being only 12 minutes behind the leader in the 1998 Tour de France, fell back in the peloton. He didn't complete the 1998 Tour. With the Tour heating up under the gaze of police and media scrutiny, matters came to the boil. The cyclists themselves, although many of them were dopers, resented being considered guilty until proven innocent. They were angry at often being instructed to continue racing by their sponsors when their teams were under suspicion. They also thought the police methods heavy-handed. The police were accused of behaving like, quote, Nazis. It got so absurd that at one point the director of the tour, Jean-Marie Leblanc, had to plead with the peloton to keep on racing. Let's remember here that the peloton at that time included some of the greatest cyclists that the world had ever seen. Reading through the literature, it's amazing to see how quickly teammates and colleagues disassociated themselves from the pharmacist. Speaking just inside the Swiss border shortly after Massey had been taken into custody, Bjarne Ries, the Danish rider, dismissed Massey as simply, quote, a trader of drugs on French television. Vincent Lavenue, the team director of Casino, Massey's team, said of the Italian, quote, he is our biggest problem. His teammates don't even defend him. This seems a little rich in retrospect, given that Lavenue didn't bother to defend him either and was himself later arrested, but by that stage the rats were scrambling off the ship. After all, loyalty had its price. In the second hour of interrogation in a police cell in Lille, you might give up your mother if you thought that it might improve your chances of getting back on your bike. Forgive me while I interrupt a sports story to tell you about the Luke Alfred Show Patreon. As you may know, 
Being a writer is not the most lucrative career choice. Please consider making a small donation to keep the show going at patreon.com forward slash the Luke Alfred show. But for now, let's get back to the story. Casino and Festina weren't the only teams implicated in the 1998 tour scandal. It has subsequently been revealed that Wood wasn't only transporting drugs across the Belgian-French border for his mates on the Festina team. He was transporting EPO for other teams as well, most likely the Dutch team TVM Farm Fritz. TVM Farm Fritz? That's quite a mouthful, isn't it? In March of that year, three months before the official start of that year's tour, a TVM van had been apprehended close to where Boot was pulled over. In it, police found all kinds of interesting things, including 104 vials of EPO. The truck drivers were questioned and released. The police said, cleverly we now see, that they had more important matters to be concerned with. It was a gambit calculated to give the impression that cycling and its internal pegadillos was rather beneath their crime-fighting brief. Except that it wasn't, which might account for why Wood was driving along a back road when he was apprehended. The literature is vague here, suggesting that perhaps Wood was apprehended at a border crossing given that he was pulled over by customs officers. But there are no crossings in this part of Belgium and France. Wood was being watched, and the customs police knew exactly what they were doing after the TVM Farm Fritz truck had been pulled over in the spring. Shortly after the pharmacist was apprehended, the entire TVM team quit the tour before the team folded completely two years later. Five other teams failed to complete the event too. Of 189 riders who started the tour in Dublin in 1998, only 96 finished the race at the Champs-Élysées. In the weeks after the race, discarded syringes and vials of this and that were found by farmers whose fields lined the race route. Interesting things turned up in the refuse bins of tour hotels. One can only imagine what shit the French sewerage system had to deal with. Where was Armstrong in all of this, I hear you asking? Well, very good question. In October 1996, Armstrong was diagnosed with testicular, lung and brain cancer. Doctors gave him only a 20% chance of survival, but with the help of chemotherapy, he fought through. He raced little in 1997, but the following year he won in Luxembourg and placed fourth in the Tour of Spain. He didn't attempt the Tour de France, although, after the Tour of Spain, he was persuaded to start training for the following year's edition of the Tour. His team, US Postal, did, however, compete in and finish the 1998 event. Although US Postal weren't implicated in the doping scandal that Festina and Casino were, Subsequent investigations by several federal agencies revealed bizarre amounts of U.S. postal drugs flushed down toilets and dumped out of camper vans. I personally find it comforting to know that the money you would have paid as a consumer to send your mother in San Diego a Christmas parcel was put to such creative and thoughtful use by the U.S. postal team. George Hincapie, a colleague of Armstrong's, later confessed that drugs were tossed into the Irish Sea 
on a ferry crossing from Ireland to France as the tour reached the French mainland in 1998. This was after its early dalliance with the thin roads, fair maidens and four-leafed clovers of Mary Island. After the traumas of the Festina affair in 1998, the 1999 Tour de France was dubbed, quote, the Tour of Renewal, and you can bet your bottom dollar that there was some chic Parisian ad agency who charged a pretty penny for that one. Shortly before the 1999 Tour prologue, Armstrong and the rest of the U.S. postal team had to undergo the traditional pre-race medical. On the way to the medical, Armstrong noticed syringe-marked bruises on his arm. He asked Emma O'Reilly, the Irish masseuse, cook, cleaner, and general team's dog's body, to disguise the bruises, suggesting base or foundation. She said that wouldn't do. According to David Walsh in his book Seven Deadly Sins, she used concealer. It was not the last thing O'Reilly would be asked to conceal. In the midst of all her cleaning, cooking and driving, O'Reilly kept a diary. The diary became an object of concern for Johan Brunil, U.S. Postal's Belgian sporting director. Brunil stole it and spread rumours to other members of the team and support staff about what O'Reilly had been writing in her diary. Eventually, the hostility directed at her by Brunil became too much. O'Reilly and her diary became a key source for Wolf, the London Sunday Times journalist who had long been suspicious of Armstrong but could never fully pin his suspicions down. Investigative journalists are only as good as people on the inside, and O'Reilly was the classic insider. When she agreed to talk to Walsh, he couldn't believe his luck. In his comeback tour after cancer in 1999, Armstrong won the 3,630-kilometer-long Tour of Renewal handsomely by 7 minutes and 32 seconds. In so doing, he became the first American riding for an American-backed team to do so, and the first American rider since Greg LeMond's unaided clean win 10 years before. Armstrong went on to win six other tours, making it seven consecutive tour victories between 1999 and 2005. What strikes me most about Armstrong is not what an incredible athlete he was. He was initially a triathlete, remember, but what a merciless bully he turned out to be. I don't find stories about the drug cocktails, the blood transfusions, the infusion of human growth hormone and the EPO gobbling anything but strange. But what really upsets me is how the tour under Armstrong was allowed to become a cult. The tour organizers in the post-Festina affair aftermath were understandably keen to see the tour get back in the saddle. They were keen to see the tour on the straight and narrow, but in so doing, they inadvertently created a monster. That monster was Armstrong. How does one understand the pernicious, orchestrated bullying of riders such as Christophe Bassons, for example? Bassons, remember, was the rider who raised concerns about the average speeds of the peloton on the 1999 tour. He also spoke out about doping and broke the code of silence occasionally in his newspaper column for La Parisienne. 
On the 1999 tour, the Armstrong Comeback Tour in other words, Bassens was frozen out by not only Armstrong but the entire peloton. Sometimes they intentionally rode slowly, allowing Bassens to sprint into the distance. On other occasions, nearly 200 riders gazed intently at him, literally staring him down into humiliation and insignificance. Once during the 1999 tour, Armstrong pedaled up to him, got in close, and put his hand on Bassons' shoulder. Armstrong asked why Bassons was saying negative things about the sport. Bassons replied that he wanted the sport to be clean for the stars of the future. Armstrong told Bassons that he had no right to be a pro cyclist and should leave the tour. What he was doing was bad for everyone. That, in fact, he should fuck right off. Quote, I was depressed for six months, Bassons has said. I was crying all the time. I was really in a bad way. A day or two later, after a virtually sleepless night, Bassons handed in his race jersey with the number 152 on it and left the 1999 Tour de France. He was roundly criticised by race director Jean-Marie Leblanc. His teammates refused to share their winnings with him. After having been a pariah on the Tour of Renewal, Bassons continued to be ostracised and criticised away from it. Riding in an event two years later called Four Days of Dunkirk, two fellow competitors tried to ride Bassons into a ditch. He did, however, receive support from an unexpected quarter. The French Minister of Sport, Jean-Marie Buffet, wrote to him. She said, quote, What a strange role reversal. Rather than fighting against doping, they're fighting against its opponent. Why, I asked myself, was Bassons such a threat to the Armstrong cult? Bassons wasn't going to win the tour after all. My answer is that Bassons was a threat because he was an ever-present reminder. He was a reminder that good persists in a culture of evil. And evil prevailed because after the trauma of the Festina tour in 1998, the tour organisers in the Tour of Renewal were not keen to police themselves in any way. Despite all this, Armstrong was no comic book villain. O'Reilly, for one, retained a real fondness for him. When you think about it, her feelings are entirely appropriate. Their relationship was peculiarly intimate. Armstrong spent hours on her massage table. They shared a sense of humour. She has written that she particularly enjoyed Armstrong's lack of political correctness. She had a nice line in droll Irish humour herself. She once complained, for example, that although Brunel earned a good salary as a director at US Postal, he was a conspicuously crap dresser. She and Armstrong could make each other laugh. He asked her to do things that were sometimes strange and sometimes wildly incriminating. She felt compelled to speak out and share her secrets and diary with Walsh, the journalist, but in the end it was Armstrong she felt closer to, arguing that their relationship had always been a human one. About Walsh, she was not so sure. She wrote that Walsh betrayed her, but the sorry truth of her courage was that before Walsh betrayed her, she first betrayed herself. Such betrayals pale before the sport of cycling's obsessive betrayal of itself. 
Nowadays, there's talk of hidden motors in bikes and bikes that are chained four, five, and six times a race. The doping has become more sophisticated and the masking agents for that doping more sophisticated still. Very few riders appear to be clean, but ahead of the release of a documentary film about him, scheduled for before Christmas here in South Africa, three-time tour winner American Greg LeMond is one of those few. Brunil disagrees. He says that LeMond always raced for French teams because there were no American teams competing on the tour in the 1980s. Quote, and you know the French, says Brunil, they were kings of cortisone. A year after the Festina Fair 25 years ago came the Tour of Renewal. It appeared to offer the sport a new beginning, a new ride, a fresh start. With the benefit of hindsight, we now know that the Tour of Renewal was really just an exercise in collective wish fulfillment, which further supports the idea that the Tour under Armstrong became a cult. Nothing really was renewed at all, just the sport's long and tawdry commitment to riding itself into the dirt. If you enjoyed this episode of The Luke Alfred Show, please give me a five-star rating. As an independent creator, this podcast is made possible through your support.